Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Amen. That answers a lot of questions, doesn't it? Amen. For instance, if I were to ask you the question this morning, what is truth? That song really answers it for the majority of the folks who are underneath the sound of my voice. But that question, what is truth, is a profoundly, has a profoundly different answer outside these walls, doesn't it? And this morning, we're going to look from Psalm 62, and we're going <laughs> to... You can tell I'm tipping my hat a little bit to what is true. How about that? Psalm 62. So if you'll turn there. The tongue is a wonderful thing that I have not yet found. There is a perspective today that Christianity is under attack, and I would not quarrel with that kind of a premise. But I do ask the question, where have you been? Now I need to qualify because I enjoy tremendously the amount of liberty that our country has pursued as we've pursued Christ's mission. And it is a wonderful kind of liberty that we share. But I do share the concerns of what is going on in our current generation. If not for this generation, for my daughters and your sons and daughters' generation. This psalm gives us a perspective on liberty that God's people have. However, the perspective is approached in the negative sense. A word that is often occurring today in the sense of oppression. Oppression. And so, by way of introduction, I want to draw your attention to two oppressive events in church history. The first we can see is through the etymology of the word martyr. It is our New Testament word for the word witness. However, it became something other than that shortly after the New Testament was written. It acquired the meaning of bearing witness of Christ unto what? Unto death. There was a training school for gladiators at Pergamum. You may re recall that city from Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus says that is the very place that Satan's throne dwells. There was a gladiator school there. And as you can imagine, with such a thirst for violence in that city, the demand for training led to the martyrdom of many, many Christians. The etymology of the word martyr, not soon after the New Testament, tells us that for a long, long time, God's people have been oppressed because of truth. There's another incident in history that came to mind, and that is a letter that John Wesley wrote to a young abolitionist, William Wilberforce. Obviously, dealing with the slave trade in England, John Wesley wrote this to Wilberforce. He said, Unless the divine power, that's God, has raised you up to be as Athanasius, that is, a church father who was greatly persecuted because of his defense of truth. So unless the divine power has raised you up to be an Athanasius, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise, i.e., the fighting of the slave trade, in opposing that terrible villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God, he asks. Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. These two examples demonstrate to us how an entire culture can be so wrong in what they call right. It is as plain as day to see that there is a wide gap between right and what 
the culture at times calls right. Yet the culture at the time didn't just blur truth from error. They completely inverted it. They turned it upside down. As we look back on history, we can see this as a gap, Grand Canyon-esque, can't we? And quite frankly, so can even common grace in the unsaved. For the Christian, our perspective of right and wrong doesn't change because our God doesn't change. Because what he calls good and evil doesn't change. What happens to the Christian who finds himself in the gap created by culture that has moved away from God's truth, calling wrong right and right wrong? My friends, that is the very issue the psalmist deals with here in chapter 62. How does a Christian stand in that gap? And there are two important qualities of God that the psalmist directs us to. The first is God's sovereignty, and the second is his goodness. The psalmist's point is that when the culture oppresses Christians because of God's truth, Christians must continue to trust in a sovereign and in a good God. And since our God is sovereign and good, all who trust in him will be rewarded. So I want you to look at Psalm 62. Let's read it. It's only 12 verses long. And see where you can find the emphasis of God's sovereignty, that is his power, his omnipotence, and God's goodness. Verse 1, a psalm of David. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man? And, and I need to pause here for a second. The psalmist is really going to have a conversation about God and a conversation about those who are attacking him, who are oppressing him. And so we see in verses 1 and 2 that conversation about God. And then beginning in verse 3, and as the context will make plain in a second, he's having a conversation with those who oppress him, who are opposite of God's truth. And so in verse 3, he says, How long will you assail me, that you may plunder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth. But inwardly, inwardly, they curse. Then he talks about God again. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Then he shifts back to those who are oppressing, those who are against God. Verse 9, men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord. For you recommends a man according to his work. Perhaps you've picked up on the concrete expressions of God's sovereignty and his goodness. The psalmist explores these two attributes of God in light of the oppressive nature of the culture. And you can see that 
that going back and forth between verses 1 and 2, who God is, and verses 3 and 4, and the oppressive nature of man, verses 5 through 8, who God is, and verses 9 and 10, the oppressive nature of man, as they aggressively attack the psalmists, and now, for us, the Christians, truth claims. And so let's look at the attribute of God's sovereignty as it is addressed in the context of oppression. And so in the midst of oppression, and that is important for us to understand in this psalm, it's nothing new. It wasn't new for Jesus. It wasn't new for the martyrs of the first century church. It was something that happened even in God's people's time in Israel. In the midst of oppression, when our God is sovereign, and I use the subjective there, when our God, in other words, when we view God as sovereign in our lives, and there are times that, Christian, we tend to lose sight of that. And so I'm saying, in the midst of oppression, when our God is sovereign, he always is, but when he is for us, our response is often, are you ready for it? Look at verse 1 so you know I'm not making it up. Silence. Silence. Now we can substitute the word trust there, if that's helpful. But this word silence, I believe, gives us a quality of trust that the psalmist is after in light of God's sovereignty. There is such a trust that not a word needs to be spoken, frankly. Not a defense needs to be made. We don't need to clamor and cling for truth like our culture clamors and clings for truth. And it seems like in the multiplicity of words, fabrication of truth can happen. And that's just not true. God says it, and it is true. God is it, and it is true. But my friends, you can't put truth into a factory and kind of cling it and clamor it and, and, and reproduce it and, 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 and make it so prevalent in a society that it, it, it becomes truth. So we have this instance from our Lord, right, as he's on the cross. There's a lot of things he could say, and there's a lot of things he could do. But for the most part, for the most part, he is silent until he says what? It's finished. Because he's resting in the sovereignty of his heavenly Father. Polycarp, one of those first century Christians, though he was, in, he was the pastor of Smyrna, where in Revelation chapter 2, again, Jesus says that some of you will have to persevere until death, until the shedding of your blood. Polycarp, the pastor of Smyrna, went to the stake in his mid-80s to 90s, not saying a whole lot, but just standing on truth. He was a disciple of John, and Irenaeus, who comes after Polycarp, was a disciple of Polycarp, and Irenaeus recounts for us his martyrdom, and it's remarkable. He st stood for truth, not having to say very many words. And they pleaded with Polycarp, they pleaded with him. No, Irenaeus recounts that nobody wanted to see an 85-year-old-plus man burned at the stake, not even the people who were compelling him to go. And they just asked Polycarp, please just recant Jesus. And he says nothing until the end. And we'll save that for the end. Martin Luther, right? Here I stand, and I can do no other. Those are really words mostly of silence, because God 
is sovereign. All these men quietly trusted in God's control over their situation because no amount of words ultimately can change the sovereign position of our God and those who trust in him. It doesn't sway, it doesn't thwart, it doesn't threaten God. And so God's people are firmly on him. Now right away I can sense perhaps that there's a tension with what I've argued so far. How can we be silent when we know the truth? And they are fabricating the truth with falsehood. And that is a legitimate question. And one that I needed to quite frankly answer for myself in this psalm. After all, a good deal of great commissioned work is not silence, right? It is proclaiming the truth. A great deal of our New Testament living is truth through verbal proclamation. And we right now, in this very assembly, are exercising the the reality of not being silent. Pastor Steve, you are not silent. You're kind of loud. We hear God's word explained. So in what sense does a recognition of God's sovereignty cause us to trust in God's silence? Well, let me tell you what I don't think the psalmist is telling us. He's not saying that now that there's a resistance to truth, we we should just keep silent and just go with the flow. Jude tells us to passionately and compassionately compete for those who are lost in his book. It's not that the world is so far gone, we must create for ourselves a little bubble and interact with and not interact with them because John tells us to be in the world but not of the world. It is not an abdication, it is not a rejection of, of most of us who don't feel qualified to contend with the world's truth claims. In other words, it's, it's not, the psalmist isn't saying, well, let's leave it up to the professional apologetist to declare truth. He's not advocating for a professional Christianity. No, we all have the responsibility. Jesus didn't just give the great commission to the twelve, but to all who truly follow him. But what is it? Here, it's really in the context in verse 4. It is silence versus those who, look at the second section of verse 4, they delight in falsehood. It's silence versus those who delight in falsehood. This is an important qualification and one that seems subtle at first, but I think, think about the concept of delighting in falsehood. Think about that for a second. They approve of it. They take pleasure in it. They are pleased with it. What can you say to someone, much less a group of people, who are addicted to such delight in falsehood? When people peddle saying things that sound good, but are not good, words no longer matter. They are redefined. Look at the end of verse 4. They are redefined to bless with their mouth, but inwardly they what? They curse. That's a redefinition. They bless with their mouth. They bless when they are really cursing. You know that common phrase today? Are you ready? You hear it a lot. All are what? Welcome. All are welcome. You know, that sounds good. But frankly, folks, no one really means that. Think about that. One of the largest Christian adoption agencies recently said that phrase as they kind of reworked their policy to uh, change who can adopt children underneath their, their agency. And they opened it up for the LGBTQ uh, uh, couple. And one of the phrases is because all are welcome. Well, think about it in the context of an adoption agency. Are all really welcome to adopt children? Do they run background checks? Are certain people with certain sexual predatory records off limits to adopt? 
Are people who can't get their lives straight for themselves and can't support themselves actually able to adopt? Now my heart goes out to all those individuals and and I, I long for Jesus to change all their lives. But my friends, that statement just isn't true. It's not true in that context, and it's seldom true in any context, save one. When Jesus Christ himself says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, there is no exclusion there. Words matter. Words matter. And my friend, those who want to redefine words to fabricate falsehood as true, do not stand with the sovereign God of the universe. And again, I'm not saying that we abdicate our responsibility to proclaim truth when I'm talking about silence here. And when the psalmist talks about silence, and he does so in verse 1 and in verse 5, so we can't ignore it. What I'm saying is that when God's truth and culture's truth claims are so distant that there's such a Grand Canyon-esque gap between them, the issues at stake are not the issues verbalized. In other words, when people argue for the definition of marriage, that isn't the, def- that isn't the, the issue for the Christian. When people argue for who can adopt and who cannot adopt, that really isn't the main issue for the Christian. The main issue is that there is only one person that can close the gap between truth and truth claims. And that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he closes the gap. And actually, if you read through this psalm, you'll see that word only appear six times for the times referring to the Lord Jesus, uh, to, to God in the psalm. And what's interesting, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but what's interesting, well, I guess we'll get to it now. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew, only is the first word of each sentence. In other words, you will notice that the psalmist is repeating the word only. And even when it's not referring to God, it should stand out as like, wow. Because he only is what? Is my salvation. That word salvation occurs four times. Once in verse 1, once in verse 2, another time in verse 6, and another time in verse 7. You know, we can have a lot of good conversations with folks. But what I tell the teenagers all the time is no matter where you disagree, frankly, it doesn't matter. It comes down to what do they do with Jesus, who the psalmist here says, through the Godhead, is my only salvation. He says, Jesus, your only salvation today, even for all the cultural clamoring that's happening, don't get sucked in. Don't get hijacked by what they want to make the conversation, my friends. It is Jesus, and he only is our salvation. What would happen if Christians were more and more silent on the popular issues of the day that the media drives and more and more verbal about their Christ. What would happen? I hope that that's true and growingly, increasingly so for you in your life and in mine. Do you think Satan is okay with us debating gender issues and marriage issues and all these other kind of issues going on? Do you think he's okay with that? I think he's okay with that, actually. I think he's okay with that as long as we're not talking about who changes everything. There's another reason for silence in this psalm. Instead of silence and not addressing the issues as presented, we can also enjoy silence in light of God's sovereignty, as we've been really describing. So look at the picture words of God's sovereignty. I want to I show you those now. In verse 2, 
In verse 6 and verse 7, you can see the word rock. In verse 2 and verse 6, you see the word stronghold. In verse 2 and verse 6 again, you see the word not shaken. And you even see the psalmist's growing confidence as he, he builds those out. For instance, in verse 2 he says, My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. I won't, I won't be shaken to the point where I lose my footing, but I'll be shaken a little bit. And then in verse 6 he, he drops the word greatly. and He says, My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. We'll see why that's so in a little bit. And all these words, they really do tie in with verse 11, where we see at the very end, the psalmist says once, twice, that power, what, belongs to God. There's God's omnipotence. There's his sovereignty. Contrast that with the community's attack on the psalmist. Look at verse 3. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him? All of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. You see, when the community of falsehood goes against God's people, they view us as, as people on unshakable ground, as people that can be pushed over, as people that don't have a good footing. That really is contrary to who God is in this psalm, isn't it? There's no indication of who the enemy is. But it seems as though David is not talking about faraway enemies, frankly. It seems, and I think I'm well within my right, though I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, that it is really the attack from those within inside his own community. Who's that? Israel. We're not talking about violence and war in this psalm. We're talking about the struggle of truth claims and worldviews. And it's the worldview that opposes God, that sees God's people as easy, fragile, and ready to fall over. They are a big target. They are so backwards. They don't believe in science. They don't, they're not educated, whatever it is. In fact, the majority of the worldviews today see religion in general as the problem to man. If you actually start studying worldviews, inevitably, it always goes down to religion is the great repressor of man's advance. And frankly, guys, that's it in verse 3. They see man as a tottering fence. Men who follow God. As someone who's like a leaning wall and uncertain, not going to be here for long. But Christian, you are not a leaning wall or a tottering fence. You are on solid ground. The sovereign who is your rock, who is your stronghold, who causes you not to be shaken. So we have seen God's sovereignty and why we can trust in him. Now let's look at God's goodness. In the midst of oppression, when our God is good. And again, I'm using that subjectively again. In other words, God is always good. But when Christian, when you see God is good, our response is going to be, look at verse 5. This is synthetic parallelism. All that means is the psalmist is kind of restating things and then growing it. Okay? And so in verse 5, he says, My soul wait in silence for God. So we got the silence already, right? Only for my Hope is from him. You see, when God is good in your life, you're going to have a response that is hope-filled. You're going to be hopeful. We could also substitute the word trust there, but it's the quality of trust. It's the outcome of that quality of trust that the psalmist is now getting us to look at. Not just the silent wait for the sovereign realities of God, but now, Christian, there is an outcome that is sure. There's an outcome that is hopeful for you and for me. As people view us as leaning walls and tottering fences. And so the psalmist uses 
uh, this statement to help us to describe God in a ta- describe trusting in God in a tangible way. It is hope. And so all of these descriptors, hope, right? Salvation, the fact that we won't be greatly shaken, all of these descriptors, he now builds to another synthetic reality, another uh, uh, reality of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it in verse 7, and then in verse 8, he says, He is our refuge. See that? He is our refuge. That's why we have hope. Simply trusting in Jesus, tis so sweet, right? To trust in Him. I was thinking of an old hymn, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, Safe on His Gentle Breast, There by His Love O'ershaded, Sweetly My Soul Shall Have Rest. That's refuge. You know, I think of the delight I have as a father when my little girls run up to me and they're cold or they're scared. I don't delight in that, the fact that they're scared, okay. But I delight in the fact that they run up to me. And then I'm big enough, I'm not Pastor Tim Tall, okay, or, or, or someone else, but, but I'm big enough for my little brood to, 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 to shelter completely. And I delight in that as a father. I'm kind of scared for the day I can't do that anymore. But until then, I delight in it. My friend, your heavenly father delights in being your refuge. So look at verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. It's easy to trust in God, isn't it, when things are easy, when they're going well. But our conviction of God's goodness must remain regardless of our circumstances. This is why the Apostle Paul could write, Rejoice always and again. What? I say, Rejoice. And that was from a prison cell. For the psalmist trusting in God, it must be not only at all times, but really a community affair. Do you see that? Look at that. He says, trust in him at all times, what? Oh, people. Now, sometimes we read stuff like that, and we just keep on going like, what in the world? That just sounds like something a psalmist should say. My friends, that is a pledge of allegiance to the community of God's people. And you know what that means? That means that as a community affair, both in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament, it teaches us that, that trusting as a community together looks like something. Having hope looks like something. And we did it this morning when we praised and when we rejoiced together and when Mr. John came up and gave testimony of a dear saint who taught him something in life. The psalmist's point is that genuine trust in God moves from the private, private, or we could say the silent, at the beginning of the psalm, right? To the community that has a hope-filled response. It's public, too. It starts as a conviction within. But it just can't stay there if it's true. And in community, we gather together and explosively affirm to each other trust in God. Therefore, as the new community of God's people, the church, we must be committed to gathering and committed to encouraging one another to trust in him. It's the hallmark of articulating trust in God, guys. When we praise and when we rejoice together, 
Isn't that the whole point of the Psalms anyway? It's a Psalm book. It's saying, look, community, trust in Him. You may not feel like singing, but you ought to sing. You may not feel like worshiping, but you ought to worship. You may not feel like fellowshipping, but you ought to fellowship. So the faith of a Jew could not exist apart from the community. Think about the Mosaic Law. Think about all that you know about the Old Testament. You needed community, didn't you? That's the Old Testament. Christian, we have such a community now. And that is now the church. You cannot live a life of faith and trust outside of that community. God has given you the church, and if you feel hopeless and disappointed and depressed and let down, chances are you're either away from the community or you're blaming the community. Think about that. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. You need me, and I need you to trust in God. It starts with a private, silent conviction, but it is fully birthed out. It realized, it actualized, frankly, in the church. And so stop blaming the community, the very design in which God wants to give you hope and to encourage you and to show you his power and his goodness. My goodness, when I get those new birth announcements, I, I, I don't get to see that many people saved in my own individual life. But as a community, when we rejoice, I rejoice in the power and the goodness of God. Amen. When I hear that somebody had their debt removed or somebody was, was healed from their afflictions, I trust in the sovereign power and goodness of God. And so what do we do as a community? Look at verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. Why can we do this? Because God is good. Because we can pour out our heart. Let me ask you a question. What do you have left if you pour something out? Hmm? Now think about the context here. This isn't the context of despair. This isn't the context of warring truth claims. This isn't the context of oppression. When you pour those things out, when you pour out your heart before God, what do you have left? None of it. And that's what you do for me. And that's what I do for you. We encourage each other to run, not to me, not to you, but to the, run to the one who saved us and who brought us into community. To run and give God all of our troubles and our cares and our needs and our despairs. And so, is your God that good? Now we get to the word only, because I want to bring out a few more things there. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. He only, in the verses 1 through 6. And then we, we have a, a different. Men of low degree in verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity. So four out of six times, the word only is really describing our dependence on God. But twice in this psalm. It's, it stands in contrast to the oppressors. To the oppressors. The only thing that's motivating them in verse 4 is to throw down people. To throw down God's people. To oppress them. The only thing in verse 9 that they really have of, subst of substance is vanity and lies stands in direct contrast to who God is. It's their motivation and it's their measure. 
And we have a picture here in verse 9. In the balances, they go up. He's talking about those who oppress, right? And he's, in the context, they are vanity. In the context, even men of high rank are a lie. And he says, in the balances, they go up. What is that? Right? I mean, we've got this old, we've got this old scale, this old weight, this old balance. Right? And if you're nothing, you skyrocket right up. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, these oppressors have zero substance. They have zero substance. And, 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 and I have to qualify because he's not talking about their worth. Okay, he's not talking about the value of their soul. No, we know how valuable they are to God that he gave his own son. What's he talking about? What is the measure? That's right, it's truth. It's the fact that their morality is so skewed that they turn right from wrong and wrong from right. And he says, that is vain. That is a lie. That has zero weight. And they shoot up. It's, it's the Wizard of Oz syndrome. It's the man behind the curtain. There's no one really of substance there. And he says it in light of, look at verse 9. This is, this is just great because God tells us community is important for the believer. In verse 9, he says, They are together, their community, as prolific and as loud as it is, folks. They together are lighter than breath. I'm kind of a sucker for one-liners, though I can't do them myself. So I rely on people. You're probably familiar with G.K. Chesterton. He's a British author, and he was great with his one-liners. And he said this, Fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashionable. That's what the psalmist is saying. They can clamor, they can pile on, but when they're on the scale with God and His truth, they are nothing. Think about that. When we were teenagers, we called that peer pressure. Now as adults, we call it something fancy, like being socially acceptable. Don't be socially acceptable if it's not God-acceptable, Christian. The choice is clear. You can either hope in God, or you can hope in man. That's really what verse 10 is talking about. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. It's extremely helpful to understand these do-nots, these prohibitions, in the morally binary context of this psalm. There's truth and there's falsehood. We have two choices. Morality from God or morality defined by men, which is immorality, frankly. The point of the, of the morality defined by men and what men call right is vain and a lie and lighter than breath and therefore do not trust in oppression. Man's way is a lie. It's empty. It's lighter than breath. It's equated to oppression, but it tries to be of substance. It tries to deliver. And those who orient their lives claiming false to be true will always be disappointed. They will always end in despair. And in this context, falsehood is the greatest weight one can bear. Do not trust in oppression! It's true.
true from an eternal perspective too, isn't it? If I trust in a false way in eternity, that is the greatest weight I can bear. That is true oppression, my friends. Orient your life trusting in the one who, can, who you can pour your heart out to. And so are you letting oppression and falsehood dominate you? There is a whole culture that is. So do not trust in oppression. And then he says, do not vainly hope in robbery. Robbery is something taken by strength or by stealth and deception. Things that are false, that are proclaimed to be true, employ deception and rob people from the truth. Just take one worldview or slice of a worldview and the sexual revolution, the redefinition of marriage, the, 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 the issue of, 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 of gender. Think about that from God's perspective for a second. Right, so the sexual revolution says that religion and, and, and really being confined to a monogamous uh, marital relationship with one man and one woman is repressive. And to only define gender in a certain way is oppressive. And so the solution from man's perspective is to remove marriage and redefine it and, and to redefine gender. But God's design... It's beautiful. Sex is to be celebrated. Teenagers, it's to be celebrated. That's right. Why are you telling teenagers that? Because it is. But in God's way. Between a man and a woman after they're married. But you know what? Any idea that tries to circumvent that, that tries to redefine that, that tries to claim some truth other than that, is robbery. That's what the psalmist is saying. It is robbery. And it will rob you from God's designed blessings. So do not trust in oppression. Do not hope in robbery. And do not give your heart to the increase of riches. You know, where the world's passions go, there go its possessions. We talked about that Christian adoption agency. And one of the things in the New York Times article that uh, basically came to light was that a lot of the motivation be, between opening up for adoption was to keep government grants and government uh, uh, subsidies, which comes down to what? Money. In fact, I think it's pretty obvious because that adoption agency actually commissioned Barna, the Christian research group, to poll Christians to see how favorable that decision would be. And so they did so, taking a strategic bet that they, would, they might lose some, but they'll keep and gain some others, all because riches increase. So the conclusion of the psalm is straightforward, and I'll be too. Okay? Verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. This is a classic way to highlight a basic principle. And really, this is kind of the thesis statement for the psalm. That power belongs to God. There's God's sovereignty. And the loving kindness is yours, O Lord. There's his goodness. And this is the only address to God, direct address to God in this psalm. And your loving kindness, your goodness, your faithful love he can't help but address God because God's so good. Now we mentioned that the psalm really addresses the Christian finding himself in the gap between God's truth and man's truth claims. And the psalmist wants to encourage us. And he ends with this. He says, for your recompense, for you recompense, 
a man according to his work. What's the work in the psalm? You have two choices. You can either trust in the sovereign, good God of the universe, or you can trust in man's falsehood. Those are your two choices. And by each of those two choices, you will be rewarded. Those who are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and who orient their lives trusting Him will go one way. And those who are direct opposite and stand in opposition to and oppress those who trust in God will go another. Man's truth claims delight in falsehood. It glories in others' downfall, specifically the Christians. They claim to be good, but they redefine, and the result is really oppression. When adhered to their truth claims, it's like robbery invalidating God's blessed design. May God help us to trust in God as sovereign and good, no matter the cost. And here's where I'm going to come back to my little friend, my little friend, my big friend, Polycarp, first century pastor of Smyrna. He's old. He's being pleaded with to change and to recant the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the stake, as he is burning, he says, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? Oh God, may you give us the ability to trust in your sovereignty and in your goodness, no matter the cost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.